You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. In our melting pot culture, we have to manage to get along with others of different faiths, while avoiding the trap of pluralism in the sense of seeing all belief systems as equally valid. I can respect your right to believe without believing that you're right. The book of Hebrews addresses people who even had the correct God, but the wrong kind of faith. They seemed sincere in their error. Here's Jim to open with prayer. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful, wonderful future that is ours because of your grace and mercy. Remind us tonight as we study your word that our salvation is not based, nor is it maintained, nor is it created by our faithfulness. It's created by the one in whom we place our faith. And because of what he has accomplished, we are free, incredibly free. Thank you for letting us live at this time in our world's history. So many exciting things happening. Thank you, Father, for letting us be part of it. We pray that as we listen to your spirit tonight, through the words that he recorded through the pen of Paul years ago. We pray that our hearts will be excited, will be calmed. He'll give us a fresh perspective, a new insight, a deeper faith, a more courageous and confident faith. I know, Father, that every one of us in this room have, have deep personal desires, sometimes heavy needs, sometimes the needs of others, sometimes disappointment, stress of all kinds. Help us tonight to hear you say to us afresh, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Thank you for the security of that promise. And thank you that it's as good today, as applicable today, as available today, as vibrant today, as there was the day that Jesus spoke those precious words of invitation into the troubled hearts and minds of the folks that crowded around him. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. amen. The main theme of the book of Hebrews is faith. You see, the author of Hebrews obviously wrote a trilogy, obviously wrote three books that are in your New Testament, all of them or each of them developing one part of a simple and singular text in the book of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk was troubled with what he knew to be God's plans. And the more he understood about the difficulties that were going to come to his nation, his people, he wrestled with God. How can this be? How can this be? And here's what God said. The just shall live by faith. And the Apostle Paul picked up that masterful, overarching principle, and he wrote three books. You want to know what it means to be just? Read the book of Romans. You want to know what real life is? Read the book of Galatians. You want to know what faith is? Read the book of Hebrews. 
And in each one of those three books, Paul, the author, calls attention or quotes that text from, Hebrew, from Habakkuk. It's one of the strongest reasons why I am sure Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. It completes the trilogy. Now when we talk about faith, we talk about faith, we're talking about confidence in things that are beyond our capacity to prove. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and note what Paul says there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is, he goes all the way through 10 chapters, 10 chapters laying the foundation for this. And then finally he spills the beans. Finally he lays it out. Now faith is, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to trust? Because both faith and trust are words that come from the same Greek word, pistos. So what does it mean to have faith? Faith is having, faith is having confidence. It's trusting. What does it mean, trust? Trust means to put faith in, confidence in. Well, what is faith? When you strip it right down to its nuts and bolts basic meaning. And that is the theme of this book. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. Now that makes the book of Hebrews, listen, that makes the book of Hebrews the most eschatological book in the whole New Testament. It puts it on a par with Daniel, with Ezekiel. In fact, I think I'm just about ready to, to proclaim or protest that Hebrews is the most eschatologically important book in the New Testament. Why? Because its whole theme is developing faith. But faith must rest upon a firm foundation. It must have a substantial reason for its existence. It must have a substantial cause to evoke, to provoke, to establish, to support your faith. I've met a lot of people who were sincere in their faith, but they put their faith in the wrong thing. And it wasn't that their faith was weak, it was that the foundation upon which they rested their faith collapsed beneath them. You have too. You probably, if you thought enough, could think of experiences in your life where you did the same thing. You put faith, confidence, in the wrong thing. And your faith was sincere. But the outcome was disappointing because you had placed your faith in something that couldn't support. That's what happens every time you uh, use a <laughs> every time you use a counterfeit dollar bill. You have perfect confidence that that bill's okay until the cashier or the manager or the banker says, "Sorry, this is a fake bill." But I was sincere. Yes, sure you were but you put your confidence in the wrong thing. That's the essence, that's the essence of hypocrisy. That's the essence of being deceived, is when you are 
enticed and beguiled, but you in good faith trust a wrong thing. Well, the book of Hebrews is all about that. Faith is the reality of what it's sold for, reality. That means that I grasp with all my heart and commit with all my mind to something that's future, something that I can't see. Look at the next part of it. It's the proof of what is not seen. That's what faith is. And we get to chapter 11. We'll illustrate that over and over and over again in the passage there, chapter 11. And we'll discover, when we come to chapter 12, that Jesus is the greatest model of true faith. He practiced faith. He was a practitioner of faith. And we often think of trusting Jesus as the object of our faith, and that's legit. Book of Hebrews says, well, the reason we can do that is because of who he trusted and how he exhibited his faith, how he demonstrated his faith in the one whom he could trust. Last week, as we were driving out the parking lot, my wife said, boy, you lost me somewhere in the first five minutes tonight, Jim. That may have been good, but it was confusing. And I thought, well, for, pardon me for last, last Monday night. It was, it was for me. I needed to get that out. The first two chapters of Hebrews contrasts Jesus with the angels. Those are the first two chapters. It contrasts Jesus as the foundation, as the source, as the model, as the producer of the promises of God, in which promises, in which uh, in which success that he had, we place our faith and confidence. And the writer, in the first two chapters, spends all that time comparing and contrasting Jesus with other supernatural beings. That's his point. We know that there are supernatural beings, and we know that the general category in which they fall are angels. And what the writer is trying to do is to the first century church to whom this, uh, this epistle was written and to us today to show us that angels are not capable of giving you the expectations that you place upon them with your faith. Oh, they're real and they are powerful but they are limited. First of all, they are created beings. Jesus was never created. And then we have a series of four other statements made in those two chapters. Let me summarize them, and then you can close those for two chapters until you, until you get a warm cup of coffee and sit down and read through carefully. Notice with me, please, in the first four verses, Jesus was not created. He created all things, and that includes the angels. Now, in verse 4, you'll notice he, Jesus, became higher in rank than the angels. So he outranks them. But notice the word became. As creator, he was already outranking them. He was of a whole different order. Uncreated 
creator. But the text tells us that he became higher in rank than the angels. There's a reason for that. Second thing that same verse tells us is that he inherited a name that is superior to theirs. And that name is the name Jesus. The Father gave him that name. And with that name came an inheritance. You know the verse in Philippians 2. says that uh, when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down, the Father gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, quote it, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's an inheritance. He didn't get that because he's God. He got that because he earned that. So the superiority that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, that Jesus has over the angels, is not just that he's God and they're creatures, it's that he became higher in rank than the angels. How? How did he do that? Through his incarnation. That's what he's talking about. And notice, he inherited a name that's superior than theirs. What is that name? That name is Jesus. Was that the name of Jesus? Every knee shall bow. And that's, that's driven home in verse 6. I don't know what your translation says, but don't miss the significance of verse 6. Verse 6 says, when he, God, again brings his firstborn into the world. Again. That's not talking about Bethlehem. That's talking about the Mount of Olives. That's not talking about baby Jesus. It's talking about King Jesus. You see that? When, the writer says, when God, again, the second time, brings his firstborn into the world. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the author is looking at. That's what he's focusing on. He's focusing upon that day and time when the name of Jesus will be clearly superior to all the angels, and all the angels will what? Worship him. See it there? When he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, all the angels of God must worship him. You see that? Now, what the writer is talking about is those things that are future, those things that haven't happened yet, that inheritance that Jesus is going to unpack, that name that Jesus is going to extol, that rank that Jesus is going to express. The writer of Hebrews is looking into the future. He's looking at the fulfillment of all that Jesus is because he's God, but most assuredly, all that he became because of his incarnation becoming man and what he did there. And that becomes the text or the main drive of the second part of this argument. Notice it, please, in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5, he has not subjected to angels the world to come. That we are talking about. The writer of Hebrews is focused on the future. He's focused on the fulfillment of the name, rank, promises that God spoke in and through his son. Which promises will come to pass because of what Jesus did when he became man, 
walked among us, went to Calvary, died in our place, rose from the grave. Can you get that, get your head around that? Got that? Just one more verse, just one more verse. In, in becoming man, Jesus for a while, chapter 2, Jesus for a while, chapter 2, verse 9, was made lower than the angels. But the writer says, we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. We see him crowned with glory and honor. That's the turnkey. Where Jesus is now and the glory and honor that he exhibits now standing at the right hand of the Father is a foretaste. It's a demonstration. It's a clincher. It's the absolute proof that everything he came to accomplish will be accomplished. He's already seated at the reign of the Father. See that? Now for him to have that, he had to be for a short while lower than the angels. Incredible. This is an incredible book. An incredible book. And he wraps that all up there in that last, that last part of his argument there where he observes that uh, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16, for it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. That is, all of the incarnation of God has no benefit whatever to the fallen angels. None. He didn't die for them. He didn't become an angel. He became lower than the angels. He became man. And his sacrifice and his victory accomplished for us a redemption that angels will never experience. Got it? <laughs> some of you, some of you look, look at me like bullfrog. Blink, blink, <laughs> blink, blink. You know the train went by because you heard it whistle, but whatever that was, it didn't stop and discharge passengers. Until you see that, we will not catch the spirit of Hebrews. Hebrews is not a book written for first century Jews, period. It's not. It's written for you. It's written for me. Its teaching is as valid, as important, and as necessary to us today as it was in the first century. That's why most people look at it and get all kinds of funny feelings. They get all kinds of goosey things. Wow, look at this, look at this, look at this. Yeah, 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 it's all there. It's all true. And it's as much for us as it was first century audience that received it. Okay? Now, in order to show us the exceeding abundance, great salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished in this incarnated work where he became flesh, where he dwelt among us, in order for us to understand its benefit to us and its necessity for us, the author has to continue to make a series of comparisons. Comparison number one, God spoke to the prophets in old times, but that revelation was partial and used various limited means. Number two, God spoke and administered through the angels. And that was valid, but it's not the ultimate. The one we're going to study it's Jesus. And that's what the author says in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, he says, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling. 
Now, brothers and sisters, that's still ahead of us. The calling is real, and it's a call that comes from heaven, provided by heaven, and takes us to heaven. But we're not home at heaven yet. We're not there yet. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to people whom he calls brothers. He calls them holy, which means that they have experienced the marvelous grace of God in salvation, where you receive by faith, on the basis of faith alone, you don't earn it, but you receive as a gift of God the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that you are holy, so that you are are cleansed so that you are forgiven, so that you at this moment, God has nothing against you that can give him any cause to judge you. Why? Because he has put upon you, he has allocated to you, he has put on your record the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why they're holy. Not because the behavior is perfect, they're holy because they have been imputed. They have been given the gift of righteousness. That's what makes them holy. And they are brothers because in that act of rebirth, they were united in a new family. They become members of the body of Christ. They become companions and brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. That's what the last part of chapter 2 was all about. So that's his audience. And that's us tonight, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are, we, are, we are holy because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and because of his perfect death on our behalf that took away our sins, the burden of our sins. We are holy. We are brothers. We are companions in a heavenly calling. That means we have a heavenly destiny. We are not part of this world anymore. We're just not. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We don't fit in. We don't think like our neighbors and friends do. We are heavenly. We're, we're called to set our affection things above. That's where our treasures are. That's where our focus is. That's where our reality is. That's where we're going to spend eternity. That's where the most meaningful things about us are going to be unpacked, revealed, and implemented. The just shall live by his faith, God promised through Habakkuk. In Romans, we learn what justice or righteousness means. In Galatians, we find instructions on living God's way. And by studying Hebrews, we can come to understand true faith. Today, we heard the first of three segments of Jim's sermon, Faith is the Reality. If you'd like to have the whole sermon on CD, we'll send it to you for a gift of $7 or more. The talk is one of 19 sermons regarding Paul's letter to the Hebrews. The collection is called God's Ultimatum, Volume 1. We'll send you the entire CD album for a donation of $66 or more. You can request one or all by mailing us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA, or by calling 1-800-984-2313. That's 800-984-2313. On the Internet, locate us at rightstartradio.org. There you can find original sermon audio, past radio shows, and instructions for getting the Right Start podcast delivered hot and fresh daily. And you can make a secure donation there. Now, every day I mention that we're listener-supported, 
because we need prayer and we need finances every day. The expenses go on. Some of you will welcome this request for help and see it as a chance to put your faith into action. It'll be great to have you aboard. Thanks if you're standing with us already. And here's that web address again in case you're not. Rightstartradio.org Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. In this mighty book of Hebrews, the author tells us to consider Jesus. That's something we try to do every day, but we'll definitely make time for it tomorrow. Please join us on Tuesday for the next Right Start. Thank you.